<laughs> All right, so we just have to say it again. He is risen. Amen. All right, so generally each year I start fussing about the message for Easter, like the day after Christmas. Now it's less than four months away. What am I going to do? And I had a couple ideas that I worked on off and on in the recent months, but I put those on hold after thinking about the recent uh, sermons from Josh Birch. Uh, he laid out for us a logical and organized and systematic uh, teaching on the subject of death. And one of the things that he reminded us of is that there is a difference between our temporary disembodied existence in heaven after we die and our eternal embodied existence in the new creation after we are resurrected. We've talked about these things before, but it was good to hear him punctuate that. And as we know, that you know, the blessed hope that Paul speaks of in his letter to the Thessalonians is not the immortality of the soul. But there he talks about the resurrection of the flesh. And our, our longing for that resurrection is, of course, addressed in numerous scriptures as well as, the, as well as in the ancient creeds of the church. And along that line, Josh also provided us with a working definition of death. Death is the separation of the body and the soul that takes place when the major systems and organs of the body cease to function in a coordinated fashion. Everyone remember that? Thought so that was a good definition. And so we could probably think of it this way the body which is dead descends into the grave, and the soul or spirit which is still alive then descends to the realm of the dead, a place where the departed souls wait for the day of judgment. Now, since the soul isn't composed of matter, it gets tricky when we frame any of this as the soul going to a place which might suggest some sort of physical location, but we need a way to talk about such things, and it is, after all, uh, these are the images that we find in Scripture. So after listening to his two sermons and thinking more about death myself and then contemplating Easter, well, the obvious questions seem to be, we know that Jesus died, we know that he rose, but what about this time period between his death and his resurrection? What about this intermediate state, Friday night, all day Saturday, and Saturday night, when he was absent from the body in the realm of the dead? What was this realm of the dead? What did this state of death consist of? What happened to him? What did he do, if anything? So I want to talk about some of that today. Now, this may seem like a strange subject for an Easter Sunday, when we, are, when we want to focus on the resurrection, uh, not the mysterious realm of the departed spirits, but hopefully when we get to the end of this morning, this particular discussion will actually deepen our appreciation for just how glorious and wonderful and triumphant the resurrection of Christ actually is, and just how glorious and wonderful and triumphant our, our own resurrection will be as well when that time comes. So whereas Josh talked about the subject of death in more general terms, I plan to narrow the focus to the realm of the dead, this abode or dwelling where the departed spirits reside, where they wait. So I'm kind of getting into an area here where, where angels fear to tread, both figuratively and literally. <laughs> All right, so the big question then is this, from what was Jesus resurrected? And that question serves as the title of today's sermon. So let's see what we can learn. We're going to begin here with a few preliminary points. 
uh, that will help us navigate our way through this. So we might think of this as part one. First, even though the Bible often refers to the realm of the dead, it doesn't provide any direct teaching on the subject. The information actually is a bit sketchy. Not everyone agrees on how it all fits together. And this is especially true when it comes to the death of our Savior. What he experienced between his crucifixion and resurrection is not entirely clear. There are things we know, there are things we don't know, and there are no shortage of things that people speculate about. Secondly, it should be pointed out that in this context of death, the word descended as used in the scriptures does not necessarily mean that the deceased are under the earth or down in some deep, dark abyss of the underworld and so on. The language that's used there is largely a metaphor. It's symbolic. In death, one's body descends into the grave and that image carries over to the soul as well. The soul descends in the sense that it leaves the land of the living. However, the language and images that are often used do condition us to think in terms of some sort of underworld in the lower regions. The imagery does, however, serve an intended purpose, and we'll get into that later on more. But overall, again, it is best to think in these terms, and I'll repeat it again. In death, one's body descends into the grave. We all know that. And that image then just carries over to the soul. The soul descends in the sense that it does leave the land of the living. Thirdly, even as most people often confuse the idea of dying and then going to heaven with a future resurrection and eternal life in the new creation, as Josh talked about this, most also confuse dying and then going to hell with the final state of everlasting punishment, the lake of fire spoken of in the book of Revelation. But we must realize that when a non-believer dies, they, like believers, must also wait for the resurrection of their bodies and the great day of judgment. And so, yes, hell, as most people typically think of it, does describe what awaits the non-Christian, but that occurs after the great day of judgment. The temporary abode where the departed spirits of the lost wait is something different. And the Bible has a word for that, and that is Hades. And there's often confusion here because in previous centuries, the word hell and Hades, uh, in English-speaking countries, those words were used interchangeably. Hell is, an, again, an English word. Its definition has evolved over the course of time. And because of this, it is probably best to avoid it the best we can in any serious discussion about the afterlife. And on this, we should note that there is another word in the New Testament, Johanna, that specifically means the place of punishment and torment. And that's the word that is consistently used for the everlasting punishment of the damned. And this is generally what people think of when they use the English word hell. All right, everyone follow that so far? Okay, good. So number four, whenever I ask if you're following it, just shake your head anyway. Number four, so we need to talk a little bit now about Hades. The word itself is a general term that simply refers to the realm of the dead, the abode of the departed spirits. It includes both the righteous and the unrighteous and consists of both suffering and bliss. Though the word conjures up something dreadful, it is for the most part pretty neutral when it comes to matters of punishment and reward. Hades is death's domain, where the soul descends to when separated from the body. It serves as a waiting place for all the disembodied spirits waiting for the resurrection. In a very real sense, it is a prison. 
God intended us to be both body and soul. And so in death, we are absent of the body, from the body, longing to live again, longing to be reunited to our body. But we can't. We cannot escape death. It holds a power over us that we cannot break. We are unable to bring life back into our bodies. You know, if only we had the keys to this prison. And based on a verse in the second chapter of Acts, we know that upon his death, Jesus descended into Hades. Fifth, a case could be made that Hades has at least two domains. Though both the wicked and the righteous wait for the coming day of judgment, they do not wait in the same way. And this is illustrated in the parable Jesus gave about Lazarus and the rich man. Likewise, the words of Jesus to the repentant thief are also very telling. Today you will be with me in paradise. The other thief, however, was given no such promise. The very term paradise is loaded with delightful expectations, a place of great wonder and blessing. And in regards to Jesus, his last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, clearly shows that he was expecting his spirit upon his death to be welcomed by the Father. And Paul alludes to the same thing, telling the Philippians that if he, um, if he died, that he would have the advantage of being with the Lord. At the same time, Hades can be a place of at least temporary judgment. Jesus warned the residents of Capernaum that if they refused to repent, they would be thrown down into Hades. So while Hades is the common destination of all who die, not everyone experiences the same thing there. However, all of it, including this paradise that Jesus spoke of, belongs to the realm of the dead. And those who reside there are all held under the power of death. Even for those who are enjoying whatever blessings it may afford, it is nonetheless far less wonderful than the resurrection life promised in the new creation that we are expecting in the future. Number six. It is commonly believed by many that upon the moment of his death, the soul of Jesus descended into hell. Though there are some verses in the New Testament that speak of Jesus descending, we do not find that particular phrase, descended into hell, anywhere. It sounds familiar because it is included in a later version, a popular version, of the Apostles' Creed. Descending into hell conjures up images of fire, devils, suffering, torment, damnation, those sorts of things. And again, this has to do with the various ways the word hell has been used through the centuries, through the years. Some have pushed this even further, claiming that the reason Jesus descended into hell was to complete the act of atonement. And so here's an example of why, uh, one example of why today's subject is relevant. This is not just about satisfying our curiosity. The subject can touch on some very significant theological issues. These popular teachers, many of them enjoy large followings, have insisted that Christ's death was insufficient in its ability to satisfy God's wrath against our sins. That his suffering and dying on the cross did not and could not provide a just payment. And this is troublesome. Frederick Price, maybe you've heard the name, uh, he's a widely popular TV evangelist, he died about a year ago, he mocks the very idea of the crucifixion securing our salvation, saying, quote, do you think that the punishment for your sin was to die on a cross? If that were the case, the two thieves could have paid your price. 
Right now, that's just crazy on many levels. <laughs> Any member of our youth group here could dismantle that kind of foolishness. But again, he was a very popular TV evangelist, and a lot of people followed him very closely. Kenneth Hagin, probably a name that you're aware of, he weighs in on this as well, saying, quote, his physical death couldn't remove your sins. His spirit and inner man had to go to hell in our place. His physical death couldn't remove your sins? Really? What Bible are you reading? Kenneth Copeland also chimes in, saying, when Jesus cried, it is finished, he was not speaking of the plan of redemption. Uh, there were still three days and nights to go through. And others have said similar things. They and others like them, most of them belong to the Word of Faith camp. They love to get everyone all worked up by painting colorful and outlandish pictures of Jesus enduring three days of unimaginable torture and abuse at the hands of Satan and his hordes of demons, and this so that Jesus could complete the act of atonement. And so of, think about this, instead of providing his death and, and, and so instead of providing for our forgiveness, the death of Jesus then becomes nothing more than a means to get him into hell, where atonement for our sins was actually carried out. Again, this is troublesome. And this sort of thinking, unfortunately, is not limited to those in the hyper-charismatic circles. A number of years ago, one of our featured speakers we brought in for a Reason for Hope conference had just written a book on the Apostles' Creed, and he gave me a, an advanced copy of it before it was submitted to the publisher. And later, when I finally got around to reading it, I was surprised to read these words. He said, Jesus went to hell, compared to which his brutal sufferings and death were but a prologue. He suffered hell for us. And later... As the bearer of all sin, Jesus was condemned to the consequences of that sin, hell. So again, this sort of thing is not all that uncommon. Many people just assume that after his death, Jesus not only went into the realm of the damned, but he also suffered damnation himself. So whether we're talking about the suffering, whether we are talking about Jesus suffering in hell to complete our atonement, or suffering in hell for the sake of suffering, or even the idea of Jesus descending into hell, we need to figure out what's behind this and if there's any truth in it. Because again, it's something we don't see in scripture. So that leads us now to part two. And the first point about that is that there is nothing in the Bible that even comes close to suggesting that between his death and his resurrection that Jesus experienced any suffering. Certainly nothing about enduring God's wrath on our behalf and finishing the act of atonement. Nothing whatsoever. In fact, the very idea strongly conflicts with all the passages that speak of his death on the cross and his shed blood as the propitiation for our sins. It's very specific, over and over and over. Christ's death was not the means to get Jesus into hell to atone for our sins. His death on the cross was the atonement for our sins. And this is, again, what the New Testament consistently teaches and proclaims over and over and over. <clears throat> Secondly, the phrase, he descended into hell, is again familiar to Christians because it's a line that is confessed in the Apostles' Creed. But there are some problems with it. It is not part of the original wording. The phrase was added later on. And on top of that, our English word hell is really not the best translation of the word that is used there. Indeed, hell completely misrepresents the intended meaning. 
So we need to spend a little time on this, and it is relevant for, it will help flesh out the problems and hopefully better our understanding. The dubious nature of the phrase has been addressed from time to time by various scholars in different magazines and journals. In fact, the reach, the, it was the featured article in this last issue of the Christian Research Journal. Both Millard, Millard Erickson and Wayne Grudem have spent quite a bit of time of it on this in their theology books. And so the information on this is readily available. Nothing I'm going to share this morning is going to be new or novel. It's, 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 it's available to everybody, and overall scholars share the same conclusions here. So here it is. <clears throat> the, the Apostles' Creed is as used today. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. All right, this confession, though called the Apostles' Creed, was not, of course, written by the apostles. It simply codifies the essence of their teachings. We do not know who wrote it. We do know that a primitive form of it goes back to the very earliest times of the church, at least to the second century. And we also know that over the centuries, it went through a few modifications. In fact, we have two different versions of the Apostles' Creed. One is called the Old Roman form, or the Old Roman symbol. This is the oldest version. And the other is called the Received form, a modified version of the earlier one. The Received form is by far more popular, and it's used in most churches, thus the adjective received. The Old Roman form is more basic and is therefore usually passed over today. But it's the version that we use here at our church, and it does not have the statement, he descended into hell. The received form, the longer version, as you see there, does, along with a few other additions as noted in the orange print. These revisions took place gradually over the course of several centuries, up until the year 650. And even then, those changes were not widely accepted and adopted until later into the 8th century. Up until then, the Old Roman form was the standard, and in the early church, it was used as a confession at baptism, you know, capturing the bare essentials of the Christian faith. To follow Christ, you have to believe in these things. So, in the later part of the 4th century, we have this monk named Rufinus, a prominent theologian of his day, who had in his possession two versions of the Apostles' Creed. The standard one, the old Roman form that all churches used, and the unique one, not widely circulated if at all, which had this added phrase, he descended into hell. And we do not know why the line was added or who added it. We don't know if this alternate version was actually used anywhere or anything else about it. It was somewhat of an anomaly. We do know that Rufinus himself, as seen in his comments on that creed, understood the phrase to mean that Jesus descended into the grave. Very important. So why did he understand it that way? Doesn't it say hell? And this is where we get to the crux of the matter. The fact is the creed doesn't actually say hell. Hell, of course, is an English word. 
In the Greek version of the creed, it says that Jesus descended into Hades. And again, the two words are not necessarily synonymous, at least in the way that those words are understood today. But when the creed was first translated into English, the two words were more similar in meaning. And so translators went with hell, a common word, instead of Hades, which was not that common. And we see this method of translation even in the King James Version of our Bibles. The King James Version, 500 years ago, commonly translated Hades as hell. In fact, you can't even find the word Hades in the King James. So again, the word hell has meant different things over the years. Today, we think of it more like the final judgment, the final punishment, a place of devils, fire, and damnation. As stated earlier, the word Hades has no reference to either punishment or reward, suffering or bliss. It's, it's just, it's just a, a general term, simply refers to the grave or to that realm where the deceased wait for the day of judgment. Even in Latin, where the phrase, he descended into hell, probably originated, the words translated as hell can mean the lower regions, this realm or prison where the departed spirits wait for the day of judgment. One is conscience, has awareness, so on, but yet is incomplete for he is separated from his body. And that is what death is. And that is what Jesus descended into. And so we could actually confess that line in the creed if we thought of the word hell as Hades, and if we thought of, uh, if we thought of it as a time that the line was inserted. But this is not how we typically think of the word hell today. So the beauty of creeds is that they are concise and avoid anything that isn't necessarily uh, necessary, and um, anything that isn't absolutely necessary, and unfortunately descended to hell isn't necessary. It just ends up confusing things. And this is why, um, you know, I have favored the old Roman version for use at our church. Many of the churches that use the received form of the Apostles' Creed have recognized the problem. And this is kind of interesting. The Lutheran and Presbyterian churches recite the words descended into hell. The Catholic Church uh, says descended to the dead. The Church of England, Anglican and Episcopal, uses both, depending on the occasion. And even some churches, like the Methodist Church, have taken the liberty to make their own revision by just dropping the line altogether. <laughs> so, you know, because creeds are not divinely inspired and are only useful tools, we are under, of course, no obligation to use them unless they are useful. And I would argue that this line here makes the Apostles' Creed um, not as useful as it could have been. So having dealt with the creed, what about the scriptures? Do they provide any useful information on the state of our Savior's death between his crucifixion and resurrection? So this would bring us now to part three. One passage that gets our attention is found in Acts chapter 2. In Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he compares David's death to the death of Jesus and quotes something David said in Psalm 16. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One decay. The word translated grave is the Greek word for Hades. Peter goes on to explain that both David and Jesus died. Both David and Jesus descended into Hades, the realm of the dead. But unlike David, the body of Jesus did not decay. This because it was not detained enough um, long enough to, to decay. As prophesied, Jesus was resurrected. And so, yes, he was held captive in the realm of the dead, this prison, 
and was from Friday night to Sunday morning under the power of death. The difference is he did not remain there. He overcame it. He defeated it. He was resurrected. Now, Peter, earlier in his sermon, says something rather interesting. To go back a few verses, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God freed him from the agony of death. The agony is not what happened to him when he died. The agony was death itself. We have to be very clear about that. It is not natural to be separated from the body. Even in paradise, the state of death is an enemy. We are not intended to be disembodied spirits. Jesus longed to be resurrected. Jesus longed to be released from the prison Hades, and he was. As Peter says, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And this then leads us right into the passage in Luke, our third passage that we talked about earlier, where the thief dying next to Jesus says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So in Jewish literature, paradise is this transcendent place of blessedness, a, a celestial garden of Eden reserved for the righteous after death. The thief will enjoy it with Jesus, and he will enjoy it because he will be with Jesus. Today you will be with me in paradise. We do not know what this paradise actually consists of, but whatever it is, Jesus and the thief enjoyed all the blessings and wonders it afforded them, including the presence of God the Father. But again, at the risk of sounding redundant, paradise is not the blessed hope that the New Testament promises. The blessed hope that Paul speaks of in 1 Thessalonians is, of course, the final resurrection and the joy-filled eternity in the new creation. Without question, paradise is delightful, joyful, amazing, wonderful. However, there is something even more delightful, more joyful, more amazing, and more wonderful. And because it belongs to the realm of the dead, it is still a prison that we were not met for. It involves being separated from the body for which we were not meant for. Not to mention that death itself is an enemy, and we were never meant to be under its power. Given the meaning of the word, we could actually think of two paradises. A lesser version that the righteous enjoy immediately after uh, they die, and the fuller, complete version that is enjoyed once they are resurrected and enter into the kingdom of God. The first paradise is temporary, serves as a sample, a foretaste, a preview of the one that is permanent and complete. The ultimate paradise is truly a paradise in the fullest meaning of the word because, again, we will have been resurrected, released from prison, no longer under the power of death, reunited to our human bodies. This so that we can enjoy the riches of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, which only the, resurrection, which only the resurrected can inhabit. Another passage is found in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20. It's a challenging passage. It's tricky to navigate. We don't have time to deal with it comprehensively this morning, but a few observations and points might prove helpful. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. 
So there are numerous theories about this, what this passage is all about. For the sake of time, I'll offer just a, a brief explanation of some of the more common ones. The first one goes like this. After Jesus was crucified, yet before he was resurrected, he descended into the place of the dead, down into the realm where the wicked suffer, and preached the gospel to those who had rejected Noah's warnings, offering them a second chance for salvation. A similar version of this says that Jesus didn't preach the gospel, but rather proclaimed his victory, and in so doing affirmed that their punishment was justified. Another theory also kind of similar, claims that Jesus went into the lower regions to proclaim his victory, not to people, but to angels who had rebelled and have since been chained up in the abyss. So all these are less than satisfying. The idea of a second chance, of course, is troublesome. Preaching victory seems a little weird, as that would be better proclaimed after his resurrection, not before. And why does Jesus just address those who disobeyed Noah? Why not all the departed spirits in Hades? And those who claim that the spirits in prison are the angels who disobeyed during the time of Noah also claim that their disobedience was having sexual relations with human women. Others have looked at this from a completely different angle and have proposed another uh, theory. Jesus did preach to these spirits in prison, those who disobeyed Noah, but he did so not between his death and resurrection, but way back when they were still alive. And Jesus did this through Noah. Noah's warnings and offers of deliverance were all delivered under the inspiration of Christ's spirit. In this case, the passage wouldn't be saying anything at all about Jesus going into the realm of the dead. And yet another position says that whatever Jesus did was done after his resurrection, not before, as noted by the words, made alive by the spirit. So all the various interpretations that have been proposed, they have certain difficulties. We're not going to try to resolve it this morning. My point in bringing up 1 Peter 3 is to say that, yes, given the possible interpretations, yes, it is possible that Jesus went into that part of Hades where the disobedient wait for the final judgment. I'm not sure of that, but it's possible. The place of suffering. If, he, if so, he did not go there to suffer himself. There's nothing here to suggest anything like that. If he did go there, it was to tell those spirits in prison, or perhaps just some of them, something. <laughs> but we don't know. I mean, we're not told what he said, or we're not told what the response was. So here's the bottom line. In the end, this passage in 1 Peter 3 isn't really all that helpful on today's question. <laughs> and we just spent, what, 10 minutes on it. All right, so where does this bring us? From what was Jesus resurrected? Well, this is what we know and don't know. We know that he was resurrected from the realm of the dead, from the realm of the dead. We do not know for certain what he did during that time. We know that from, his, from Friday evening um, to early Sunday morning, his body was in a tomb. His soul was alive, but he is more than his soul, and while his body was dead, he was not truly alive. We know that he, along with the thief, were enjoying the blessings of a paradise. We also know that even in paradise, he was under the power of death and longed to be released. He was a captive, held in a prison that no one had ever broken out of, no one had ever escaped from. A notorious prison that the greatest and the mightiest have always been helpless to overcome. The bars are too strong. The walls are too thick. 
a prison that the Bible calls the great enemy, a prison that was, early Sunday morning, breached. These are the things we know. We know that he entered into that blessed hope when his body lived again, when he was resurrected. To get resurrected from paradise is not a commentary on how dreadful paradise is. I mean, how could it be if it's called paradise? But when you think about this, it's a commentary on how wonderful and glorious and truly magnificent a resurrection life, in contrast, really is. Now for part four, the conclusion. My favorite part. Not because it's a conclusion, but because <laughs> I'm, I know what you guys are thinking. Yeah, third, my favorite part, too. All right. All right. <clears throat> In light of Christ breaking out of the prison of Hades, there are two passages in the book of Revelation about Hades that might take on new meaning or appreciation in light of what we've covered this morning. The first one is in Revelation 1.18, where Jesus appears to John after his, after his resurrection and says this, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. But behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Man, I got goosebumps thinking about this. I mean, what words? What do you think he is going to do with those keys? He holds the keys because he overcame it, broke it, took power over it. And as the one who holds the keys, he controls he, control, he controls who will be released from this prison and when. But the image here is striking. Someone broke out, stole the keys to the prison, and is about to let everybody else out. And this is where it all connects to us. And it should bring to mind many of those treasured points from 1 Corinthians 15. Namely, that Christ's resurrection has guaranteed our resurrection. It is inevitable. Nobody can stop it. He has the keys. Jesus rose from the grave. He is the first of many to follow. It will follow. It will happen. It is guaranteed. Now, in Jewish thinking, the future resurrection of the dead belonged to the final events of the end. This means that when Jesus rose, the end started. His resurrection set off a chain of events that cannot be stopped. The walls of Hades is proven to be less than omnipotent after all. Someone tore the bars away. Someone broke through the walls. Someone overcame the warden. Someone took the keys. And he's about to open up the doors and let everybody out. And that was his plan all along from before the creation of time. Our resurrection from the dead on that last day when Jesus returns will bring about God's absolute authority over all things and the death of death. God will be all in all as the prophecies proclaim. Satan's tyranny will be brought to a conclusion and God's sovereign purposes will be fully realized. The final rupture of the universe will be healed and all things will, will be brought into harmony with God's sovereign will. The resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of those who are his are essential episodes of this great divine plan. And this, of course, was Christ's mission to restore what had been broken and offer it back to God. Because of his death and resurrection, sin, death, and Satan will be conquered, 
the effects of the fall will be reversed, death will be destroyed, and everything will be, will be put back in its proper order. In this glorious kingdom, God's will will be supreme in all places, in all times, in every way. But for this to be brought about, the last enemy has to be destroyed. And that enemy is death. And Christ destroys it when those who are in him hear the trumpet and are resurrected from their graves. This then leads us to the next passage in Revelation about Hades, and it's found later on at the end in chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from its from his earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then, John continues, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Death is the common fate of all men and women, Christian and pagan together. And Hades is their common destination. That is, until the day of judgment. Just as the beast and the false prophet and the devil had all been thrown into the lake of fire in the verses before this, so now death and Hades are thrown into the same lake. Ultimately, death and Hades are rendered as powerless as all the other forces of evil. In the end, there is no power but that of God's. This great plan for our redemption culminates in the death of death. All the works of Satan are, are reversed. All the effects of the curse are undone. A restored, redeemed, resurrected creation emerges, populated by the resurrected followers of Jesus, the resurrected and conquering king. Assured of this grand victory, the scriptures in both the Old and New Testament taunts death with these sharp rhetorical questions. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your power now? Though we still die, death can only hold us under its power for a short season. For the Christian, um, not only has the poison been sucked out of the stinger, but the stinger itself has been pulled. The hope of the resurrection allows us to stare down death and not fear it. For we know that the one it answers to is a friend. We know that the one that death answers to is a friend. We who are in him will rise even as he did, and we will be transformed as he was, and we will not die again. His victory has now become our victory, and the only thing that can be said to this is what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about all this, is thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He tore the bars away. He broke out. He overcame the prison warden. He grabbed the keys. And he will soon unlock all the doors and let everyone go. And then he will utterly demolish the prison once for all, never to rise again. Thanks be to God.
So after explaining the significance of Christ's resurrection to the Corinthians, Paul concludes with these words, and um, I'll finish my sermon with these as kind of like a marching orders to all of us. He writes, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. All right, you, let's stand, and um, Josh, you want to close? All right, well, thank you, Wendell, for those words. Um, just a couple of thoughts that I had listening to that. One is, I think this message underscores the importance of not just reading our Bibles, but studying them, because... If we do not understand as we read that there are two different words that may be translated hell, Gehenna and Hades, we are going to have a hard time making sense of the biblical material surrounding what happens to us when we die. And again, that's not necessarily the fault of any particular translator. It's just the result of English not having words that exactly match those Greek words. And those are things that we've got, we've got to be able to understand as we're reading in order to not end up confused. We sang this morning the song, uh, See the Conqueror, and one line in that song I really love is, the mighty Lord in thine ascension, we by faith behold our own. And that really is our situation as Wendell talked about, and as we talked about the last couple weeks before that, Christ's resurrection is in fact the guarantee of our resurrection when he returns. And by faith, we we know that is the case, and we behold that, if you will. So I'm going to close again with a passage that I read last week, another passage that I really like that reminds us of this ultimate hope. This is Paul to the Thessalonians. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He is risen. He is risen Let's go and encourage each other with those words.